Well, good morning. Glad you are here. Thank you, worship team, for preaching a sermon before we even get started with the sermon. That was uh, to remind us of those truths. I'm so glad you're joining us with this morning. For those of you over in the overflow, thank you for being here. For those of you online, um, we are continuing on in our kind of focus of the theme, Family Better Together. Now, two weeks ago, Rick led us through Colossians 3, which reminded us again of the position and the, the, the new identity that we have in Christ. And because of that identity and that position, we therefore set our minds above, set our hearts above. Last week, Rick challenged us with the truths of Jesus' word and the Sermon on the Mount, really asking us, what is the foundation of our faith resting on? Which prompts the question, what is the foundation of your faith? If it's faulty, right, if it's, if it's faulty or made of sand, then there's going to come a, time in, a point in time where that foundation is going to be proven to be untrue. And sometimes, I think there's a couple of faulty foundations that we have among us, and we don't always really realize it until we stop and point them out. Number one, a faulty foundation could be our emotions and our feelings. If I, I have to feel close to God, right? That's sort of that close to Jesus moments that we've probably had. And if that feeling's gone, then where's my faith? It's not a, not a, not a firm foundation. Another one we have is sometimes relying on our own good behavior, our good works, right? If I, if I do the right things and God's going to bless me, life is going to go good, which is great until we do the right things and life doesn't go as we planned. Another faulty foundation or temporary one could be relying on someone else's faith. Now, sometimes when we come to place our faith in Christ, you know, we, we've seen our parents, we've seen our grandparents, we've seen people who live authentically for Christ, and we see Christ in them, so they're, they're, our faith is kind of being supported by them, but at some point, our faith has to become our own. We have to put our own feet on something. I think a, a fourth faulty foundation that won't hold sometimes is her own brain's. We think that, well, in order to have a faith that is, is strong and can stand any kind of way, I have to be able to understand everything. I have to have all the questions answered. Right? And if it doesn't make sense to me, or if there are questions for which I can't find satisfactory answers for me, then I don't know that I want to believe. I don't know that I can believe. The problem with a faulty foundation of, we'll call it intellectualism, is that there will always be questions that we can't answer about God, about how things work in the world, about why this happened or why that happened. But why, God, didn't you answer my prayers in this way? Now, I'm not saying that our, our minds aren't important to our faith, that we shouldn't seek answers, because, because we absolutely should. But I'm saying if we put that requirement, that foundation about what our feet should set on is, is that won't hold because we are finite people. We are limited in what we can see and what we can understand. Can we, can we fully trust what God has revealed to us about himself? Absolutely. But ultimately, our faith can't rest upon our own brain. So if it's not our feelings and our works, not someone else's faith, not our, not our ability to reason and understand, then, then what is the foundation of our faith? 
kind of an important question that we need to answer, right? It's this. It is Jesus. It is who he is and what he has done. When we look back at Matthew 7 from last week, we we know that the the floods are going to come. The rains are going to fall. The wind is going to blow on every single one of our lives. Hard things will happen. Tragic things will happen. We will be mistreated. There will be injustice done to you or someone in your family. And therefore, how do you respond? What are your feet set upon that will not shift or give way in the midst of the storm? What is your foundation? The foundation of our faith, again, is who Jesus is and what he did for us. It is the person, right? Our faith rests on a person. It is God. It is Jesus. It is the Holy Spirit and what he has done, what the Father has done for us through Christ. And we're gonna see this foundation here this morning in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you wanna go ahead and turn there. And as you turn there, I'm gonna tell you, we are gonna be directly challenged this morning. And I want to directly challenge you this morning to ask, what is the foundation of my faith? What are those bedrock truths that are setting my feet on a rock that won't shift, that won't give way? Well, in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, we will be confronted with these foundational truths and the truths of the fact that we have a privileged position But then also, what do we do? What's our responsibility? What is the proper response to that position of privilege that we have been given? Important questions, and we'll discover some answers. So if you're not familiar with the book or the letter to the Hebrews, it was a a letter written primarily to a Jewish audience. So it it has tons of Old Testament imagery, a lot of Old Testament quotes, But the author is making the case that Jesus, who he is and what he did, is our foundation. He's saying that Jesus is superior, superior to to all the Old Testament prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses. He has a superior priesthood. It replaced the Old Testament priesthood. Jesus is the perfect, ultimate, final high priest because he filled that role of being the one to go in to make the sacrifice on our behalf. And it was a final sacrifice of himself that satisfied the payment for sins. That Jesus Christ is the foundation and rock upon which our faith stands. And in chapter 10 of Hebrews so far, the point has been made that that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was inadequate. It was inadequate because it was only able to take this, you had to take the sins away year after year. Verse four says that. Which is why Jesus is superior, because he sacrificed himself once for all time, verse 12. And the Old Testament priest had to make the same sacrifices on behalf of God's people time after time. Sort of stand daily, verse 11, to make the sacrifices again and again. But verse 12 says, 
Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, there was no more work to do. It was complete. The priesthood of Jesus replaced the Old Testament priesthood. And the personal benefit that we get is that our sins have been forgiven, removed from as far as the east is from the west. That's verse 17. And to put it plainly about what this author has said in these verses so far, 1 to 18, is that we stand before God because of Christ in a privileged position, in a standing that we don't deserve and could not earn. But therefore, what do we do in response to that position? So verses 19 and 21, just like the, the, the Hebrews, all the letter up till now, draws upon a lot of Old Testament imagery. The temple, the holy place, curtains, sprinkling of blood, a high priest. But these verses are also giving us reasons that is going to give us this, this challenge. Reasons to draw near in verse 22 and, and go on, right? You see in verse 19 it says, since we have confidence. Verse 21, since we have a high priest. The author's laying out reasons. So verse 19 says, therefore, based upon what has been written so far, based upon what I've written in, in chapter 10 about Christ's sufficiency and the sacrifice he made, Brothers, brothers and sisters, this term for like, hey, all you believers. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. What's our privileged position? Well, first, it says that we have a humble confidence to come into God's presence because of the blood and the saving death of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy place, this reference to the holy of holies, right? This place where God himself, his very presence would reside, where the high priest would enter once a year to sprinkle the blood of a, a Passover lamb on the altar so that the sins of the nation would be forgiven. And we... You and me have the confidence to enter this holy presence of God. Why? Because of your own goodness? Because of the goodness that was running after us in the form of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. Our privileged position to be able to come before an all-powerful, righteous, holy God is only because the blood of Jesus that was shed and his death in our place. Therefore, we come with a humble, yet a holy confidence into the presence of our God. Verse 20 also notes that our confidence to enter God's presence is by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. The author is saying this in another way, that Christ gave his body, his human body, as the sacrifice for our human sinfulness. It was the physical body of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that was sacrificed on a cross. See, the foundation of our faith, the confidence that we have to come before God is the gospel. It is Jesus himself and what he did for us. Well, 
This confidence is also on who he is. Well, who is he? Verse 21. And since, another reason, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So another reason we have this privileged position and that we're going to be challenged to draw near in a second is because Jesus is a high priest who intercedes for us and advocates for us. He intercedes for us. He's our go-between. Now, there's when we were desperate because of our sin, without God, without hope in this world, God, Romans 5, 8, demonstrates, took action to demonstrate his love for you and me. And that while we were in the midst of our sin, Christ died for us. See, Jesus interceded for us. He also advocates for us. He's our attorney who pleads our case before the judge. So when we have a, a prosecuting attorney named Satan, stands up to the judge and says, here's the evidence. I've got DNA evidence. I've got video evidence. I have eyewitness testimony. They're a sinner. They're guilty. They deserve to be punished. They deserve to be banished to hell for all of eternity. Then our advocate Jesus himself stands up and says, I don't deny any of that evidence that was presented, but I have one more piece to add. It's the evidence of the fact that I have placed my righteousness because of their faith upon them. So judge, when you look at them, you don't see what they have done wrong or how they've fallen short. You see my perfection, my righteousness that I have put upon them. See, that's what Jesus, our great high priest, has done for us, interceded for us, advocates for us through his blood, through the saving death that he accomplished on the cross so that we are saved, so that we have a, a brand new identity and we can stand in this privileged position. These are the foundational truths of our faith and why we can enter into the presence of a heavenly father with humble confidence. But as I said before, this privileged position also comes with a proper response, a responsibility. We've seen verse 29. We've been given some reasons why we have this position, but now what are the ways that we respond? Well, there's going to be three ways, and as you've likely seen in the next three verses, there, there are three kind of encouragements, exhortations, says, let us, let us, let us. Now, some might say this is a, a passage full of some good spiritual salad. Right? A lot of lettuce there. Come on, people. Right? Sorry, I, I couldn't avoid a good, a good dad joke from here and now. You like the, the jump rope joke? Ah, never mind, let's just go ahead and skip that one. Um, yeah, so these next three verses challenge us with three ways that we respond, not because of our own goodness, because of the goodness of God, because of who Christ is, this great high priest, what he did. He died for us on the cross. The first way to respond is, number one, to draw near in faith. Now, these, these lettuce commands are, are, not, are not really commands. They're like, they're, they're begging. They're, they're imploring. They're exhortation. Like, this is, this is what we must do. 
Let us draw near to God in faith, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. See, God provided you with a new identity and a position because he desires to be close to us. That's always been his desire, to, for us to be able to be in his presence, to, to live in close proximity with him, to have an intimacy, an abiding relationship with the God of the universe. So he wants us to draw near in this intimate relationship with a true heart, pure, authentic, undivided a loyal heart and full assurance of faith and this confidence and assurance not in how great we are but in how great God is. That our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Again, a reference to the, the sprinkling of blood that would occur on the altar in the Holy of Holies. We have been sprinkled clean, made pure, made innocent. We have been given freedom from guilt and shame. Our bodies washed with pure water. They have been made pure, clean, righteous. Not a reference to a baptism that makes you righteous, but the fact that the Holy Spirit now has come into you and has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. Let me be very clear. It says, if you have repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are forgiven. You're clean. It says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 10, seven, chapter 10, verse 17. And if this is the case, and it is, then why do we go back and think that our sin still defines us? Why do we let Satan deceive us to think that your, your sin still controls you? To make you think that, that you're unworthy, irredeemable, less than, that you should feel shame, that your identity is, is still tarnished. That's not what the scriptures teach about who Christ is and what he has done for us when we place our faith in Christ. Instead, he says, you are innocent. You are righteous. You are made new. It's, it's hard to draw near to someone that you don't trust. And some of us need to learn to trust God better. But it's, it's also especially hard to draw near to someone who is perfect and wonderful and beautiful and holy when we are thinking that there is no way I deserve him. I, I, I don't deserve him. I, I, I can't draw near and you can't, right? But God says, I've done away with all that. So draw near to me. I want to be in close proximity and relationship with you. Why? Because I've made you clean and because you are forgiven. The second response that we're encouraged to make is to hold fast to the truths that give us hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? What's the basis for our holding fast? For he who promised is faithful. This idea of like clinging for life to something, 
desperation. It's a grip that I will not let go of. We hold fast to what? The confession of our hope. In other words, the words that we have affirmed that are true. The fact that God, you, you've done something for me, therefore I trust all of, my, all of everything on you and what you did for me. That's our hope. And a biblical hope is not, well, it might or might not happen. A biblical hope, a hope based on God, is an absolute certainty. It is a hope that is sure it will come to pass. And it's not based upon the fact that, well, if we do enough good things and it might come to pass, what does the verse say? It is a hope that is based upon the fact that God is faithful. He will keep his promises. He will keep his word. He will do what he says he's going to do. Right? A promise is only good as the person who makes it. If I said, hey, I'm going to give everybody $10,000 at the end of the service, you think, well, that's generous. But that promise is only good as if Nate can, can come through with that, the, his end of the bargain. And God will come through. He has the resources, and what he promised will come to pass. Therefore, we hold unswervingly with all that is within us to this hope, the confession that we've made. The third response, final response to this privileged position we have is verse 24. It says, we must carefully consider how to motivate others to love and to good works. And the command really is this, to let us consider, to think how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, the ha- as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, if we are in a close relationship with God, if we've drawn near, if we're, if we're holding fast to this hope that we have, then this faith and this hope spills out in our relationships with others. The vertical, the the relationship we have with God himself is influenced and impacts how we live among one another. It's important to note that the the main verb here is about thinking. To carefully consider. To think creatively and purposefully about how we can challenge and how we can stir up and stimulate and, and motivate one another to love more. To do more good. It's this idea of a, of a coach right before the game and say, you guys are, I'm demanding that you go out and play a good game. And saying, no, come on. We were made for this. This is the time. Let's go. Let's do this. That we carefully consider how to motivate one another. And, and that sometimes looks different and in different situations with different people. Say, Let's love one another. Let's do what is good. Stir up, stimulate to love and good works. These are tied together, right? Love does something. There's there's action with it. And something is not good if it's done out of love. Love and good works are tied together. But you can't also effectively do verse 24 if you won't do verse 25 which is committing to meeting together. The emphasis on this command isn't really about what you get 
from your local gathering of believers. It's not about being a consumer, but it's about what you have a responsibility, what we do because of our privileged position of giving back to this body, to the people God has put around us. This idea of assembling together, it's the Greek word for synagogue. This idea of this was part of their everyday rhythm of life where they would come to gather, to worship together, to hear from God's word together, to do the one another's together. And you can't neglect that, as is the habit of some. And COVID-19 has created some good habits. The fact that you probably worship together maybe more as a family and more intimately than you did before. But it's created some bad habits. Like, yeah, you know, I can catch church online. I'll just watch it later. But that's a habit that as believers, we're not allowed to exist we are to come together with regularity and to challenge one another to love, to do what God has called us to do, to be about the mission that Christ has left us here to do. And we encourage one another finally with urgency. We stir up, we encourage one another, motivate them in a, in a God-glorifying way rather than shaming or guilting or manipulating people and do things. We encourage them. Why? Because there's a day that is approaching. This day referring to the fact that Christ is coming back. And he will come back as the, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the judge of the living and the dead. And we will have to give an account for what we did with Jesus Christ and how we lived for him about his mission while we were here on the earth. So we encourage one another with, with eternity in mind and with an urgency in mind. Knowing and embracing who we are, our position this privilege, this new, brand new identity that we have then should affect what we do. We're challenged to draw near because, because God wants us near. We're challenged to hold tight to this hope, this guarantee of promises that will be kept by our Father because he's faithful. And we are challenged to consider, to think about how we can, we can encourage one another to love better, to do better. I said as we started that we would be challenged to think about what is the foundation of our faith resting on? Is Jesus who he said he is? Did he do what the scriptures said that he did? If those are true, and they are, there's nothing else that is a more firm foundation than in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Then we have a foundation that will never fail. Ever, never, ever fail, no matter the floods that come, no matter the winds that blow, no matter the rains that fall, our foundation is secure. We have a position 
that we can never be knocked off of. But this position comes with the responsibility that we, we draw close, that we hold fast, and that we consider how to stir up and encourage one another. How will we challenge one another to love more, love better? What good deeds will we stir up one another to do? And will we stay committed? Will we re-enter into this commitment of this gathered body and do the things that Christ's family are called to do? We're going to have a time of response here. I would ask you to go ahead and, and stand as the, as the band comes up and leads us into a, a song of response. I'd like to, for you to consider. Consider your, the nearness of your relationship with God at this moment. That are, are you relying solely on what God has done for you? What the identity that he has given you? I would ask you to, if, if you're relying on something that's faulty, get rid of it, renew that focus, the feet on that firm foundation to draw near right here where you are. And people will be here to, to pray with you, to talk with you. I challenge us to hold fast and to carefully consider how you can serve within this body. Right? You can come forward this morning and we would love for you to, to make it official here, to, to be a member, to be a part of this body. But it's more than just having your name listed as a member. It's about functioning as a member of the body of Christ. So I'm gonna pray for us. I ask that you would respond as the Lord leads you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our firm foundation. I thank you that you are faithful to keep your promises. How great is your faithfulness, oh God, my Father. I pray that you would empower us through, through your Holy Spirit to draw near to set aside those lies of shame and guilt that are not true of us anymore. But we come forward in humble confidence, knowing that you've accomplished all the work that needs to be done. But yet, Father, we would take seriously this challenge, this exhortation to consider how to stir one another toward love and good deeds, encouraging one another as we meet together. Father, guide these responses. Guide our response and our obedience to your word. May we be faithful out of the responsibility to the privileges and new creation that you've made us to be. We pray all of these things in Jesus' awesome and holy and wonderful name. Amen.